So we are continuing the series that we started uh, two weeks ago as we are working our way through the book of Romans. Um, and we are uh, going to be working our way through chapter by chapter throughout this entire summer. So we are going to make it to the end of Romans, but it will take us all the way to the end of summer. But if uh, as we work our way through and study uh, through this letter that Paul wrote to this, to this community in Rome and to this church, I just encourage you to follow along with us. And especially if you're going to miss a Sunday this summer, on vacation or whatever it may be, that, that you would continue to read and, and look at the chapter, like I said, as we cover these uh, throughout the summer. And we did start two weeks ago with Romans 1, and we saw kind of the introduction to the chapter. And then we see in verses 16 and 17 in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul gives us kind of a thesis statement of the entire letter. And then in the following verses after that, then he, he dives deeper into all of these foundational truths as he um, gives us the next layer of scripture and the next layer of the foundation of our faith and of this letter. And we see from, then we enter into this first major section of the letter, which we started on week one and chapter one, verse 18, and we are finishing today. So this section goes through the end of chapter three. And so today, as we study Romans chapter three, um, we, we will um, conclude this section and this first major section of the letter is all about establishing God's righteousness as compared to our sinful nature. It's comparing God's righteousness to our sinful nature. And in chapter one, we saw that God is the only thing worthy of our worship and that he establishes the moral standard through his righteousness. Right? He was the creator of our world, therefore he has the, the authority and the right to set the moral standard and he does that by his own righteousness. Right? He sets the moral standard for us. And then um, in chapter 2, we saw last week that everyone will be judged. And that the only way that we can ever pass that judgment test is by having our heart changed by God. And the evidence of a changed heart is a life of integrity. Right? And we saw last week, as Paul defines the life of integrity, of when what we say matches the condition of our heart. And the condition of our heart within dictates our actions. And if all of those then match, right, then we are living a life of integrity, and that is evidence of the fact that God has changed our heart. And now today we reach the final section that addresses the ultimate problem that God is faced with. Right? God is faced with a huge problem that, that he has to figure out how to solve. And again, God is God and he is holy and he's all powerful and all knowing. And so God figures it out how to solve this problem that he is faced with. And here in chapter three, we see this problem. And the problem is that because he is righteous and just and holy and we are sinful and fallen, the problem is that we, because of our sinful nature, are moving further and further away from him. And yet, he wants to be reunited, reunited with us in relationship. And that is the problem that God is faced with and that we are faced with. How can we be in a relationship with a holy God when we are sinful? And God in his holiness and his righteousness cannot be in the presence of sin. That the cost of that sin must be paid. And so we, we start here in Romans chapter 3 um, as we have two these first two sections as we go through um, that Paul just continues to establish this problem before he gives us the solution at the end of chapter 3. So we're going to pick up here Romans chapter 3 um, in the first section, 
that we're going to read is, is chap, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have your own Bible, or don't have it with you, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use. And you notice on the outline is the page numbers of where you can find this passage in those Bibles. Okay, but now just uh, please follow along with me, Romans chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 1, where it says, Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But, some might say, our, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Okay, so as you see this section, right, as, as Paul kind of brings up this idea of, again, once again, of being a Jew, and like, what's the value of that? And if we're stuck in this sin trap, like, what does it matter? And, and he, he, but yet he presents us with this this next truth of is he's leading up to the dramatic conclusion of God solving our sin problem, right? And that is that we also need to understand, right, that God is faithful even when we aren't. God is faithful even when we aren't. Again, because of his holiness, because of his, his just character, because of his love, God is faithful even when we aren't. Because the truth is we aren't faithful as he says, God gave the law to the Jews. He, they were God's chosen people. Right? And they were given the law and, and, and the instruction of what to do. And did they live up to that law? No, they didn't. They were unfaithful to it. Right? Because of our sinful nature. And yet, even when they were unfaithful, God remains faithful. Again, God is not changed by our actions or our attitudes or our sin. Again, he establishes this fact again in verses 3 and 4. Right? When he says, true, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. Now, one thing to remember as Paul kind of, you know, calls out the Jews here even in this section is to remember that Paul is calling himself out in these words because he himself was a Jew. In fact, he was not just any Jew. He was a top-notch Jew. He was a Pharisee. Right? And with being a Pharisee meant that he knew the Old Testament, and he knew the law, and he knew everything that, that God had called them to. And he, again, is acknowledging that even him was one of the, the Jews of God's chosen people that were unfaithful. Right? And we look at a Paul, even Paul's story, right, and his background that, that he was passionate about persecuting anybody who followed Jesus Christ before God changed his heart. Right? And Paul, again, is, re is reminding 
them and us that no matter how unfaithful we are, it does not change who God is. Right? That we are all sinful. We all have, again, this, this problem where we're drifting away from God. And yet, and no matter how many times we turn our back on God, he does not turn his back on us. And then we see as we following these verses, moving into verses 5 through 8, he kind of gives these kind of these rhetorical questions. Right? And, and which really come out to be excuses about, well, why should we, you know, not feel bad about our sin? And again, he literally even says in the parentheses in the verse, like, this is a human point of view. This is not God being faithful. This is us being unfaithful. Right? As he goes through these different things, like, well, hey, you know, I mean, the more we sin, the more holy God looks and, and the more powerful he is to forgive that sin. So therefore, our sin is, is, is good for God because it shows how great he is. And and again, Paul's sitting back, he's like, guys, you're ridiculous. Like, these are just excuses. These are, these are excuses for you to try and figure out how you don't have to change. Right? These are ways for you to sit back and, and be like, hey, like, you know, we try to use, again, a human point of view and human reasoning to, to say, like, you know what, I don't, I don't have to change. I don't have to stop doing what I want to do, and yet God is still faithful. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've realized um, you know, with this human reasoning and even just, just all these excuses. And we all come with excuses, right, from time to time. One of my, just my personal observations about just the human condition in our culture, in our world, right, is that people do whatever they can get away with. Okay, people do whatever they can get away with. Now, now, now again, we, we do. I mean, that's just, that's our human condition. And, and again, if we can reason for ourselves why we can just keep sinning and yet it's, it, brings out glory, then we'll make that excuse, because if we can get away with it, we'll do it. As, as I, you know, think about that, we, we know, we see that in, in you know, in, in our culture all the time, and, you know, again, everybody's driving down the freeway, the, the speed, everybody goes, you know, five to ten over the speed limit, until they see a cop. Right, because what happens when you see the cop car in the median up ahead of you, right, or, or he, he pulls on the on-ramp, right, everybody slams on their brakes. Right? Even if you're driving the speed limit, you still subconsciously do it. Right? Because we will do whatever we can get away with. Right? And yet, once there's some sort of authority figure around that, that makes us realize, like, oh, i got to check myself, because we naturally do whatever we can get away with. What I tell you is, is um, oftentimes I kind of try to uh, avoid the awkwardness in a conversation if I'm on a flight or sitting next to somebody somewhere, you know, and, and because always the question comes, what do you do for a living? Right, and I'm always hesitant to say that I'm a pastor. Now, again, I'm not hesitant because I'm ashamed of being a pastor or I don't, uh, don't want to be a pastor. I, I'm hesitant to say that because as soon as they know I'm a pastor, the conversation changes. Right, because then I realize once they know I'm a pastor, this is either going to be a really awkward flight for the rest of the time Right? Or, you know, or I'm going to hear their whole church history and they're going to confess all this kind of thing because we do what we get away with. And as soon as there is any sort of authority figure of any kind, we change what we do and what we say. Right? And, and with that said, right, people do what they can get away with. And, and again, if, if we can slip by, if, it's the, if we can take the easy way out, if we can avoid a little bit of, of inconvenience or pain or whatever it would be, we will do it. Right? Even if we have to, even if it's something as simple as avoiding calling a friend to help us get our TV home, okay, we will do it. 
if we can get away with it, even if it's a bad idea, right? even if it could turn out really bad, we will still do it because we will do whatever we can get away with. Right? It doesn't matter how bad it might end, right? It, because the, the light bulb needs to be changed in the stairway. Right? So we're going to figure out a way to do it, even if it's a bad idea. We'll do whatever we can get away with. Now, in this picture, I think, obviously, he's out there. He's saying, my question is, how is he going to get back? Right? That's the, what I, I'd really like to see. Right? I, again, as we think about that and see, again, people do whatever they can get away with. We avoid work or inconvenience in any way, even if, if we'll figure out how to not have to go to the truck and get the ladder. Right? We'll, we'll just stand on top of the door. Right? We'll do that instead of getting the ladder. Now, now again, we know this is not a smart idea. It's not going to end well, but yet we will do whatever we can get away with. Right now, as we think about that idea and this, this human condition, right, Paul is telling us, like, hey, no matter how unfaithful we are, it doesn't change who God is. Right? No matter how unfaithful we are, he is always faithful. Right? So we establish this, and then we move into this this next section, this last section, before we get to the dramatic conclusion, okay, and as we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So we're going to pick up at chapter 9, or not chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. As we see this last section, again, as Paul is, is continuing to present to us how big of an issue our sin is, and in this last section, um, he teaches us that sin is a trap that we can never get out of on our own. That sin is a trap we can never get out of on our own. You know, as, as we, as, that's something that I think we kind of philosophically know, it, yet we don't necessarily understand the weight of our sin or the power of our sin. And yet here in this passage, as as he makes this statement, right, in, um, in verse 9, where he says, no, for we have already shown all people, whether Jews are, that we are all under the power of sin. And then he goes in, in verses 10 through 18, and he just kind of tries to tell us how bad our sin really is. And as we read these verses, realize that verses 10 through 18 is not anything new that Paul made up. In fact, 10 through 18 is a mashup summary of, of seven different Old Testament passages. He is literally quoting Old Testament scripture in verses 10 through 18. 
Again, not a new concept to him, but he's showing us, even through these Old Testament scriptures, how bad a sin trap we are in. Right, and as he does this, and he quotes all of these passages, right, then we see um, the, the conclusion of this in verses 19 and 20, right, where he says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. And to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Again, he's telling us, right? He's like, obviously it applies, right? It has this, right? It shows us how guilty we are. We can understand because of the law, the weight of our sin. And how big of a trap that is. And how we will never be able to get out of that trap by ourselves. And as we saw again, he's, this is the final thought before he gives us the hope and the conclusion of how God solves this problem. Now, as we've gone through chapter from 118 all the way down to, to this point, to 320, right, these have not been hope-filled passages. Right? And yet, he's, he's trying to get us to see that we are all in the same boat when it comes to our sin. Right, that we can't look at somebody else and be like, man, those people are horrible. Good thing I'm not like them. Okay, because the truth is we're all in the same boat. Okay, and again, as we think about that, to kind of summarize this entire section of Scripture, I think this, this, uh, this picture, this cartoon, is a great representation of what he's trying to get us to understand. Right, is we're all in the same boat when it comes to our sin. And we cannot sit up on the high end of it and be like, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. Because the truth is, the entire boat is going down. Right? Sin is a trap that we cannot get out of on our own. Right? And, and as we understand the power of this, right? and, and all of the doom and gloom that he's presented to us, and like I said, I understand there's not a lot of hope in these first two and a half chapters. Again, there have been some hints and some foreshadows, but now we reach the last half of chapter 3. Okay, and that is when Paul reaches the dramatic conclusion of everything. Right? This is where he finally gives us the, 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 the solve to our problem. Right? This is where the occasion or the equation finally gets solved by God. Right? And we see all of this, and then we finally made it. So Congratulations, you made it through all the doom and gloom. Now here's the hope. Right? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. It says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. 
God this, did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Again, they, finally we get some hope from Paul right, in this foundational letter. Again, what does God do? Right? We hit the, the, the climax of the problem. We see the problem, the, how we can never get out of sin ourselves and, and, and how much it, it will pull us down. And then we see here, he finally tells us in these verses that God solves the grand cosmic problem with one big move. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. With that one big move of sending Jesus to earth, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, and rising again on the third day, with that one big move, he solves the entire equation. By that we can be saved because of Jesus. Right, and he summarizes this in verses 23 and 24. Now, Romans 3.23 is one of the more famous financial verses of the entire letter for good reason, right? Because it summarizes this whole good news gospel, right, in these few verses. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. If that's not hope, then nothing is. Right, that is a powerful truth. Right, that we are all sinned, we all fall short, and yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight because of Jesus Christ. I only, I only get one amen from that awesome truth. Right, God has set us free by the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, praise God. I don't have to earn it myself. I can be set free from the sin trap. Right? And then in the following verses, after 23 and 24, right, Paul goes on to explain further the true results of Jesus' mission, of this one big move that God makes to solve this huge cosmic problem. Okay, the first result that he teaches us about the result of Jesus' mission in verses 25 and 26, okay, we learn that the rules of creation have not changed. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the rules of creation have not changed. This is what I mean by that. Okay, again, the rules have not changed. God is still righteous and holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. That has not changed. God's character has not changed. The wages of sin is still death. Right? And sin will still cause damage if it's left unchecked. That has not changed. Right, what the only thing that has changed is that now through the person of Jesus Christ, God can offer grace and forgiveness 
and transformation in our hearts. That's the only thing that's changed. The rules of grace have not changed. God is still God. Sin is still sin. And the wages of that sin is still death. The only thing that's changed is that that price has now been paid through the person of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to pay it ourselves. Right? And because of that, we now live in the covenant of grace. That's the only thing that's changed. Is that now we can receive grace when before we were subject to the law. Right, which leads then to the next conclusion that he comes into in verses 27 and 28, that as a result of Jesus' mission, not only have the rules not changed, okay, but also we can only be saved by faith and not by works. As, the, as a result of Jesus' mission, we are saved, but we're not saved by works. We are saved by faith. Again, grace, right, the definition of grace is getting something I don't deserve. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve transformation. I don't deserve to be cleansed from my sin. But I get it anyways through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is grace. Right? And that's the only way we can be saved. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is the only way we receive grace is through Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it ourselves. If we cannot earn it ourselves, we get it for grace. And yet, does that mean then that we don't do good works? I mean, again, because that's what every other world religion says is I work my way to salvation. Right now, because of the mission of Jesus Christ, it says that we can't do that. Right? That's not how we get it. But it doesn't mean that I still don't do good works, but why I do good works changes. Right? I, I don't do good works because I'm earning my salvation. I do good works because of my salvation. Because I'm changed, because I'm transformed, now I have a different motivation for doing those good things and for helping other people. Right? I help other people now because I've been helped by a holy God. Right? I do good things because good things have been done for me by Jesus Christ. Right, the outside actions don't really change that much, but the inside motivations are drastically different. We don't do good works for our salvation. We do them because of our salvation and to bring honor and glory to the one who paid for my salvation. So we see again those, these results of Jesus' mission that the rules of creation have not changed, that we can only be saved by faith, not by works. And the last one in verses 29 through 31, he shows us that the law has been fulfilled, but not abolished. The law has been fulfilled, but not abolished. Right? The law still exists. It is still there. Again, the original law was given to show that we need a Savior. And now that has been fulfilled because we now have a Savior. As Jesus said on the cross, right, one of the last things he said on the cross before he gives us his spirit and dies and literally pays the price for our sin. Right, the last words of Jesus was, it is finished. What was finished? The purpose of the law was finished. Right, and it was now fulfilled through 
his death and his resurrection. Meaning that we now see that we need a Savior. That our sin is a dead end. That we cannot save ourselves. And therefore, we need Christ. Which means that now the law takes on a new purpose. Again, it is not abolished. It still exists. But now it is for a different purpose. Because the law still shows us and still establishes God's moral standard. Remember, he's the one that sets it. It's his idea. He has the authority to do that. Right, so the Ten Commandments still matter. They still show us who God is and what his holy standard is. And the goal of our life. And how to give him glory and honor is by living up to those. That moral standard does not change. Because of Jesus. Right? But... That still exists. But what does change, though, with that is, again, is what I put my faith in. Because before Jesus, they put their faith in the law. Right? Their faith was in the law to save them, to follow all of the decrees and to do all the sacrifices and do everything exactly the way that they were supposed to do it. That's where their faith lied. And now our faith is not in the law anymore. It's been fulfilled. It still exists. It's still important. It still shows us who God is. It shows us the moral standard. But now my faith is not in the law. Now my faith is in Jesus. Right? And my faith is in the fact that he paid the price for my sin and that I'm saved through him. That's where my faith now lies. As a follower of Jesus, as a, as a believer of Christ, as a Christian, my faith rests in Jesus, not in the law, not in myself, not in my church, not in my pastor, not in, in doing the, enough good things to get there. Right? That's all false. My faith has to be in Jesus and only in Jesus. Right? Which then leads me to this conclusion as we wrap up this section of Scripture, I now want to you know, present the rhetorical question that Paul gives all of us, and that is, right, what is your faith in? What are you putting your faith in? Is my faith in Jesus Christ where it, where it rests and where it belongs? Or is my faith in something else? Is my faith in me doing enough good things to outweigh the bad things I do? Is my faith in me showing up to church enough times? Is my faith in my pastor or, or in my community or, or in my family or in my upbringing or in my whatever? It might, if your faith is in anything other than Jesus, it is misplaced. What are you putting your faith in? Because there's only one place that that, and that, that faith becomes a saving faith. Right? Which is exactly what he tells us in Romans 3, verse 22. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Amen. Everybody is welcome into the gospel. It doesn't matter what baggage you bring in. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed in the past. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever you got. Everyone's welcome if your faith is placed in Jesus. Your faith can't be in any, anything else. It has to be in Jesus. And again, I don't know where your faith is today. I don't know if you've ever put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've never... Receive him as your savior. 
Uh, as, as Paul tells us later in Romans, in Romans chapter 10, he says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then you are saved. Right? And that's how you place your faith in Jesus. Right? And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but if you're here today and you've never done that before, I hope and pray that you would do that today. You believe in your heart that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Right? That I can only be saved by him, not by works or nothing else. Now, you believe in your heart that that's true, and then confess with your mouth means that you just pray to God, even pray in your own mind and say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner. I, I, I ask you to forgive me, to come into my life and forgive me and cleanse me and, and help me to move in a new direction. And if you've never done that, you can do that today. You can pray and invite him in and confess, oh, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know I am. Please forgive me. Enter into my life, right? I put my faith in you. And even if you've done that, even if you've done that decades ago and you've lived your whole life as a believer, right, we still need to ask ourselves this question. Am I putting my faith in the right place? Because we still need to, it's easy to drift, it's easy to, to lose our focus, right, or to get stuck in our journey and not be moving forward at all. Because the truth is that is a decision we need to make every day that I'm putting my faith in Jesus and only Jesus. And no matter where, again, I don't know what your faith is in today. But even if you are already a believer in Christ, right, we still have to ask ourselves that question. So today as we conclude, it leads me then to my final thought today, and that is this. We are all born with a sinful nature and therefore separated from a holy God. God solved the problem for us by sending Jesus to this earth, but we must accept this gift of freedom. Are you ready to join the journey of faith? Again, you can join that journey for the first time and receive him as your savior, or you can, again, make that decision every day. I'm joining the journey and I'm moving forward in my faith. I'm not going to be stuck. I'm not going to be stagnant. I'm gonna, not going to be just sitting still. I'm going to move forward in my faith. I'm going to be more like Christ tomorrow than I am today. Again, I hope that you will join the journey every day. Right, and, and renew your faith in Jesus every day. Right, and I hope that you'll leave here today knowing that my faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord God, that's our prayer today. God, that you are our everything. God, that our faith is in you and you alone. And God, we praise you today that you save us. God, that you solved our sin problem for us once and for all through the person of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that as we go this week, Lord, that we would live out that gospel message every day and every moment of our life. God, that as we pursue you with everything we have, that we move forward in our journey, God, that, that we would shine your light and your love through all of our actions and our good works and our attitude. Lord, so that those around us in this dark world, God, would experience your light and your love. And that others would be drawn to you that need you. God, we pray as we go this week, Lord, that you would guide us, Lord, and, and show us, Lord, where our faith is put, that it doesn't belong. God, we'd always end up back with you. We praise you, God, for saving us, for being faithful when we've been unfaithful. God, for knowing that we can't enter ourselves, so you gave it to us freely through your grace. Guide us as we go, Lord, as we live out that truth in every moment we have this next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.